Ali was clearly one of us um, at the end of the day. He, he had the same flaws and weaknesses we all do. He was brash. He was outspoken. He used his platform to advocate for the issues he cared about. I don't think there's a greater injustice in sports right now than, than the way athletes have been allowed to treat women. I think the problem is awareness and a lot of people still not believing the problems are as widespread as they are. Welcome to From the Sidelines, the podcast that gets you just close enough to the games you love. My name is Alexander Goot, and I want to thank everyone for joining me, particularly because I know it's been a little while since our last edition, and I apologize for that. Life has a way of getting a little crazy, and in addition to that, it took a little time to make the schedules work and carve out the time to chat with my guest this week. But what I can promise is that it's a conversation that is well worth the wait. I am joined by Daniel Roberts. And for those unfamiliar, Daniel is a frequent contributor for Deadspin and a tremendous sports writer on a number of subjects. He has written thoughtfully, as we discuss uh, in just a little bit, on the accusations against Jameis Winston. He did some work that was seminal in changing the conversation surrounding Floyd Mayweather and making sure that the national media paid more attention to the accusations and ultimately convictions uh, of Floyd Mayweather on charges of domestic violence. But specifically what sparked uh, wanting to talk to Daniel at this time was a tremendous piece that he wrote for Deadspin uh, about a month ago now entitled What We've Lost with Muhammad Ali. And obviously there's been no shortage of really excellent remembrances of, as as Daniel calls him, the greatest, not just the greatest boxer, but uh, one of the greatest icons, entertainers that the sports world has ever known. And so I wanted to talk to Daniel a little bit uh, as we're now a little bit removed from Ali's passing from his memorial service, really just chat with him about Ali's legacy, about his memories of the fighter, of the man, of the activist, of all the things that Muhammad Ali was, and with a little time and a little space, talk about the way in which he has been remembered by the world. So it's a really uh, interesting conversation that then branches into Daniel sharing some thoughts on his writing career and how it took shape and some of the other work he's done. And I hope everyone enjoys it. I want to thank everyone for joining me again and taking the time. Encourage everyone to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and to please go back through our archives, uh, take a listen to some older chats with Ian Levy, with Will Leach, Kavitha Davidson, Julie DeCaro, just to name a few. So thanks everyone for joining. We will be back with you hopefully a lot sooner next time around. But for now, without any further ado, here's Daniel Roberts. And I am thrilled to be joined by Deadspin writer Daniel Roberts, author of What We've Lost with Muhammad Ali. And Daniel, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Uh, long time coming, I would say, but it's but it's great to finally have you on and, and get to chat with you. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, pleasure to chat uh, chat with you. And uh, yeah, it, ha- it's been, uh, it has been a long time, but definitely, uh, hopefully worth the wait. <laughs> well, ske- schedules and things uh, can, g- can get difficult. And, and it took a little time, but it's it's definitely going to be worth it uh, because I've wanted for a while that's, that's now. A, that's, to, that's, that's, that's a that's a that's a that's a heavy boast there, given that you're talking to, <laughs> talking to me. But let's I'm, see. I'm confident. I'm confident. We can we can circle back at the end and and make sure. But no, I, I'm really <laughs> thrilled to have you on because.
because you have been a favorite writer of mine for some time. Um, but but recently, specifically in a period where obviously we saw the entire sports world with a tremendous outpouring of emotion um, at the loss of Muhammad Ali, and it's safe to say that you know befitting an athlete of his greatness, we had a just incredible uh, number of of amazing pieces celebrating his life at at ESPN at the Ringer at Sports Illustrated we we had you know links being thrown around and and pieces being shared that were written you know 20 30 years ago and just mm-hmm. re reliving all these incredible memories and and you know the retelling of the story of Muhammad Ali and your piece at Deadspin um which once again if every, anyone hasn't gotten the chance to check it out yet what we've lost with Muhammad Ali was was one of the better ones I've read and and should be to no one's surprise because you've been a, a tremendous writer over a dead spin on boxing on combat sports on a number of subjects for some time but I, I'm, I'm just going to start with this what, what made your piece so sort of noteworthy and powerful to me was and i'm going to just quote a little passage here what made him so powerful what made him the most recognizable figure sports has ever had and likely will ever know what made him quite possibly the most popular human being on the planet i believe it was his humanity ali for all his success for all his talent for all his gifts whether god-given or earned through hard work was tangibly visibly empirically human and I thought that was so interesting because we, we talk so often about our athletes as heroes, about our athletes as these larger-than-life figures, and, and we think of Ali in that category so often. But for you, and I think for many others, he was also one of the most human athletes we've ever seen. And and expound on that a little bit and, and what what you mean with, with, that, uh, with that phrase. Sure. So, you know, it's funny. Um, you know, obviously... Um, you know, the, you know, the news that he had passed came, uh, it was not a, a huge shock, but it did come suddenly. And to be honest, I wasn't even sure I wanted to write something on it. Cause mm-hmm. I felt like my own feelings about Ali, uh, were too complicated to try to, to get down. And I, I, you know, especially when, you know, in, in a moment like that, when you want to be very careful, about what you say, I, I didn't want to take the risk of writing something that I didn't feel um, accurately captured who he was and you know what he meant to people. And, it was and it's honestly, a hard thing. How how could anyone possibly in in one piece capture right. all of the things that he well, was? Yeah, especially with Ali. And I didn't want to write something that was really kind of you know a, a description of him as a fighter because I think that to do that is is to recognize really not what made him great, but what brought him to people's attention. What made him great was something different because there have been, truth be told, better boxers mm. uh, than Muhammad Ali. Um, but he was, no question, a great boxer. And he was also, um, you know, if not, you know, uh, he, he was, you know, when he was young, brilliantly fast, unhittable. But when you look at what made him great, it was not... He was not the tremendously popular figure he was to become in his youth, and a lot of that was about the time when he was. It, but it, it developed over the years, and it came when, one, he he became much more visible outside the ring for his humanitarian activities, mm-hmm. and two, when he became a beatable fighter in the ring, when he came became a guy who did lose fights, who, who could be hurt visibly in the ring, and... Uh, 
you know, I think, you know, the, the, the quintessential Ali fight for for many people, including myself, is the Rumble and Jungle uh, against George Foreman. Absolutely. Right. And that was a fight, you know, no one expected Ali to win. And, and he won um, basically not by being the bigger, stronger man, and not even really by being the faster man, but by, by being this, this, you know, at the same time, kind of incredibly vulnerable, but also superhuman person who, who was able to be punched repeatedly by the, the biggest puncher in the history of the sport, George Foreman, <laughs> and then come back. And at the end of the fight, you know, I think I say this in the piece, you know, it's not even really clear that he so much knocked Foreman out as he'd sapped all of Foreman's will mm. to keep going. And, <laughs> you absorbed know, his energy, almost absorbed his energy. Right exactly. Yeah. And so it was all these things about him. It was this weird contrast between these superhuman abilities and all of our human frailties that I think made him so special and unique. And I think, you know, as I was thinking about this, and when you think about, you know, who are the great, you know, legendary figures in mythology? Well, a lot of times they're, you know, like Achilles or something like that, where they are half man, half God, and they have a weakness, some little weakness somewhere. But there's this this mix of supernatural ability and incredibly human frailty. And that's what makes them relatable to people in a way that, you know, um, figures who exist in this kind of exclusively larger than life plane n- never really become. <laughs> Ali was clearly one of us. Um, at the end of the day, he he had the same flaws and weaknesses we all do, uh, and he was also someone who had the will and the gifts to become one of the greatest athletes of all time, and certainly one of the most uh, amazing entertainers of all time. And I think, for me, that was the there was a realization I think I, I stumbled on um, just late that night was that he that was what really separated him from you know Sugar Ray Robinson probably a better boxer but not someone who people think about in their day-to-day life the way they think about Muhammad Ali it's so interesting because and especially you know I I can speak for myself and and probably speak for some younger sports fans of my generation is that we're we're so conditioned to the imperfection of the imperfections of star athletes being a, a cause to take them down being reason for you know jabs and and pokes and prodding from the sports media and you know the the frailty of an athlete is is typically something that I mean we we there, there was so much talk about this during the NBA Finals and our dissections of LeBron James and Steph Curry and these top basketball players and, and how it turns into nitpicking and the focus is always on what's lacking with these guys, what their flaws are. What, is there some question of character that you can find in their performance? And it's so fascinating that, as you say, when it came to Ali and, and you know, I think this was something that, that, as you mentioned, came very much after his boxing career was finished. But those same frailties and those same weaknesses and the things that made him human made him, as you say, one of us. It, it wasn't a cause for taking shots and tearing him down. It was, oh, my gosh, look at this, you know, look at the amazing humanity. Look at the amazing relatability of this man. 
Well, you know, it's funny. The two guys you mentioned in the NBA are, are I think, good examples of this as well. I mean, Steph Curry, uh, one of the things people have always responded to about about him is the fact that, you know, he's not seven feet tall. I mean, he's not Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> Shaquille O'Neal, uh, as great a player as he was, was a genetic freak, you know, a, a one in 10 billion kind of lucky, lucky roll of the genetic dice <laughs> that produced – you know, this guy with the natural size, reflexes, all those things that, you know, even even when he got kind of slow and out of shape at the end of his career, could still be a dominant player just by virtue of his kind of God-given gifts. Steph Curry, you know, is a, you know, a guy you would, if he was, you know, walking down the street, if, if you didn't know his face, you'd walk right by him and never suspect he's a <laughs> professional athlete. LeBron clearly... Uh, is a, is a guy who falls into the very gifted genetically category, but I also think when we talk about LeBron's popularity, which I would you know I haven't studied this or anything, I would guess is at an all time high right now. I do think he had to go to South Beach to reach that point. I do think he had to have that fall. Um, and, and then the redemption mm. that all of which highlighted his humanity. And I think going down three, one, and then coming back and winning the series, all of these are things that, that made LeBron, you know, more relatable to people over time. They, they, look, they all understand. We've all made decisions when we're young that, you know, upset people around us, you know, and, it, and for him being, a, you know, a, a, a Ohio kid growing up and then leaving. I mean, I think we, everyone kind of has felt that. Um, you know, those things we did, maybe rebelling against our parents or, or whatever when we were growing up and then realizing later in life as we've matured that, you know, that was a mistake. And, and LeBron in that way has has kind of mirrored that. I mean, he kind of rebelled against his hometown. He went to South Beach. He got his ring there. But then he, you know, he returned home and he now he's brought a title to Cleveland. And I, I think that, that connects people to LeBron in a way that makes him much more relatable than had he just played for the Cavs his whole career. Um, maybe he would have won some other rings and you know, and all that. But I think it's it, it's really the the humanity of LeBron James. I think has come out a lot more in in recent years, and I think that's probably why he's more popular now than he was five years ago. The, the humanity, the outspokenness, the the willingness to sort of engage on certain issues, the willingness to talk about the South Beach experience and the decision and all of those things that, that as you note, sort of made him more human. Um, I want to circle back, though, because it's interesting, too, and, and we're talking a little bit about LeBron here. And, and I want to circle back to something you were talking about a little bit before, which is that we're so conditioned typically to make the legendary sort of larger than life figure out of, you know, the the generational talent of their sport, whether mm -hmm. it's LeBron James, Michael Jordan, who, you know, you can make a case for the greatest <laughs> that ever right. played the game, Wayne Gretzky. And, and you make a point that that I think is is a really interesting and important one that, you know, Muhammad Ali, by by most objective measures, was not the greatest boxer, not the greatest fighter of all time. He was, as you write in your column, simply the greatest. You you don't qualify it any more than that and in many ways if if you right tried to qualify it more than that you you would be wrong there were others who accomplished more in the ring so so to someone maybe not familiar with his uh, boxing career with the sort of uh, ins and outs and wins and losses how how do you explain that 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 he became this sort of legendary figure despite the fact that there were others who could uh, surpass him in the ring 
Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, it, he, as I say, he, he was certainly among the greatest. He was not the greatest, but he was among the greatest. So I think the fact that he was supremely uh, talented as a boxer and in the conversation amongst the greatest fighters of all time was a prerequisite. No matter what he accomplished outside the ring, um, it wasn't going to make it wouldn't make up for it if he'd been a, uh, a mediocre <laughs> fighter. Um, but what you know, it was so many things. It was his charisma. I mean, we're talking about a guy who's really given gave birth to the charismatic athlete entertainer that you know we, we we might take for granted today that athletes do these things to kind of brand themselves and and become known but he was he was really one of the first guys who was as you know notable outside the ring as he was in it and he was also a guy who plainly in a way that very few athletes are today spoke from the heart uh you know he, he you know he wore his heart on his sleeve and and he spoke directly from it and and you know when you hear an athlete today um you know responding to adversity in their life uh it's it's almost always with reading a canned speech that's been gone over by lawyers and press agents and you know the athlete is you know, reading the the right words off the page, and it means nothing to anyone. Uh, you really got what you saw with Ali, and um, you know he ended up, you know, taking some controversial stands at the time that have been, you know, borne out by the course of history for being, you know, on the right side. You know, his stands against war, his stands against, you know, injustices and civil rights. You know, so I mean, here was a guy who. Who was a hundred percent authentic? Who took really brave stands? Who was on the right side of history? Incredibly charismatic and a great athlete to boot. That combination is extremely rare. And then you throw in the fact that he was so personally relatable that we, any one of us, could have found something in Ali that reminded us of ourselves. And and that's what took him from being. Uh, you know, the greatest athlete or the greatest boxer or the greatest entertainer and made him just the greatest. <laughs> what has been, um, I'm curious, we're, we're now obviously, you know, some weeks removed from Ali's passing, from the funeral, which obviously was a, an incredible moment and, and a gathering and I think a chance for a lot of people, whether, uh, you know, online, on the web, uh, on television, it was it was a celebration and it was in many ways sort of just a, a collective time for everyone to, to share their grief and their memories and their feelings about Ali. And it and it became this very sort of uh, I think eye opening experience for people who maybe weren't as familiar. W- what are your thoughts as someone who is such a you know big big fan and historian in some sense of of the sweet science on the funeral on how he's been remembered on on how things have unfolded since his passing? Well, you, you look, it's the right time to focus on the positives in Ali's life. And I think all that is being emphasized right now. Um, you know, Ali was, as I say, a very human, a uh, very flawed person. And, and there's plenty one could find if one wanted to, to pick at his history uh, where, you know, he um, maybe wasn't true to his principles or, um, or, or behaved in a way that he would later come to regret, and I, you know, I think at the front of everyone's mind, at least every boxing fan's mind, is the way he treated George Foreman, excuse me, uh, excuse me, Joe Frazier, mm. uh, in the run-up to you know 
their well, really all three of their fights, but especially uh, in, in the run up to the Thrilla in Manila. Um, and uh, you know. It's so interesting because that's I feel like in many ways a, a debate and a and a conversation and it just <laughs> goes to show yet another way in which Ali was a pioneer that that we're still having today these sort of debates and conversations about you know what is appropriate and inappropriate in terms of selling a fight and being uh-huh. a character and how you treat your opponent and is everything fair game when it's all you know in in the name of the box office and those sorts of things and and right as you say all of that started with with some very serious questions and people who have strong feelings about the way Ali handled that all those decades ago. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you know, we, there are, there are debates today about commentary on shows like first take and, and, and such, you know, about, uh, you know, I, I can't even remember the guy's name. Who, who, whoever, there was a guy who called Robert, uh, Robert Griffin III, the cornball brother. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> and and it, kind of all these sorts of things. But, you know, Bryant Gumbel wrote an article about Joe Frazier called A White Champion with Black Skin. And, you know, Bryant Gumbel, a respected journalist at the time. I mean, the, that, you know, and that was. I mean, I think, you know, uh, it was in a different era, but I mean, <laughs> tremendously harmful article, which Gumbel later regretted. And ironically, you know, Gumbel in his life later was teased himself for, uh, you know, not behaving as, you know, Chris Rock or others uh, sometimes felt he should as a black man. Mm. Um, you know, but. Uh, you know, I, I, the, the the fever pitch of the commentary around some of the things that Ali did was, again, you know, uh, unique. Again, I tend to blame more the Bryant Gumbles of the world than Muhammad Ali for that. I mean, I think Ali, in, in my uh, non-scientific, <laughs> untrained assessment, you know, was we're all uh, just sports writers here. We're There's all just nothing yeah, scientific exactly. about any of this. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I tend to believe that he was trying to promote the fight, that he did make efforts to mend fences with Frazier, and Frazier was unwilling to accept those, uh, and that I think he felt a lot of regret later in life about what he had done to Joe specifically. Um, but again, I mean, uh, you know, uh, I think, you know, this is not the time to go in and and relitigate those things. Um, there is fantastic journalism on them going back 30, 40 years now, and we can debate them again. But I think the funeral and everything else um, was was a great chance to celebrate the you know the positive things Ali did in his life and the amazing legacy he had as a humanitarian um, for the last thirty years of his life after his boxing career was over thirty five years um, you know becoming this figure who could go to any country in the world and children who never saw him fight would run you know. To touch his hand, and that's that's this almost divine power he possessed. <laughs> that, that, that that again, I can't think of another athlete who has that ability. I mean, there are athletes who are popular all around the world, um, but to be you know twenty thirty re- years removed from your prime, and you can go anywhere in the world, and children will come running up, and and, and with this look of reverence in their eyes, it's it's a very unique quality to Muhammad Ali, and he. And he 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 didn't exploit that. You know, he was not. He didn't put his name on every uh, 
product he could have or anything like that. Uh, he, you know, he he used his remaining years after boxing to try to make the world a better place, and I think that's rightfully the thing to focus on. Um, but of course, not the complete picture. But I absolutely think you know the the eulogies he's received were tremendous and uh, deserved. As someone, it's so interesting talking about right his his uh, the, his legend and and what a huge figure in the years since. One of the first things I always come to when I think of Ali as as someone who was right too young to really remember and experience his career as a boxer was was the Atlanta Olympics and mm-hmm. Ali is the torchbearer and sure. just fascinating to to go back now and to think because what I remember as much as anything from that time was the fact that it was a surprise. And the fact that everyone was marveling at the extent to which how in the world do you keep Muhammad Ali as the final, you know, torchbearer of this journey as a secret. And and that was almost as impressive as anything else that that, as you say, there was this almost divine, like godlike, frankly, figure in the world. And and somehow they were able to spring him as a surprise and and sort of open the the Olympics that way and just give it that level of. Of, of grandeur, of spectacle, of all of those things. And it was, I, I mean, I remember I was, I, I must have been, I would guess, right, I was 13 at the time and thinking to myself, as much as I knew Ali, seeing that and seeing what that meant to Atlanta and the Olympics only sort of pushed it another level in terms of really understanding just how important this this guy was, not just to our country, but to the world. Yeah, I agree. And again, just to go back to the humanity, the image of, you know, his hand shaking as he Mm. lit the Olympic flame. um, You know, I think it's, again, one of those things that connected people to him because they understood that the reason his hand was shaking was because he'd given he devoted his whole life to entertaining people, um, you know, in, in a brutal way, a way that most people can't imagine doing. But, you know, he brought smiles to a lot of people. Uh, doing that, and then he looked so superhuman, and yet, in, in, in there, in that moment, he looked still, as you say, godlike, and yet at the same time, there was this obvious humanity that you know his, the, you know, the flesh and bones, uh, the spirit was strong, but the flesh and bones were were no longer strong, and it was this again, kind of incredible uh, moment of a mix of the divine and the very human. You know, it's an opportunity there to to jump to something else that I wanted to just just ask of you and discuss with you because it's something that's always very interesting to me. I mean, I am someone who would consider myself a casual um, boxing and and fight fan, certainly not (laughs) immersed in the sport on every level. But someone like Ali, and I'm curious for your perspective here, and Ali is hardly unique in this, but but watching the toll that obviously his career and all of those years of fighting and fights that, as you wrote in your piece, you know, continuing to take fights that he most certainly should not have as, as some of the damage to his brain and to his physical condition had already had already started. Watching that in the years since and, and seeing the toll that this sport continues to take on so many of the people that participate in it, how how difficult is that for you as someone who's obviously a fan of, of boxing, of the sweet science, who finds so much beauty in it? How difficult is it to reconcile that beauty with the cost that it so often takes? Yeah, and I'm also someone who who boxed growing up, who who's been concussed probably a hundred separate times in my life. At least, gotcha. if, if you read the NFL concussion guidelines on what constitutes a concussion, anyway. Um, 
it, you know, uh, it, it's a very real um, consideration. I remember uh, I was on with Will Leach a couple of years ago, and he asked me the exact same question. And <laughs> you know, it's a, it's it's a to project boxing or any combat sports future. I think is the difficult thing with every every additional bit of information we learn about CTE and, and the kind of other effects of kind of repetitive brain trauma, um, you know, and, and yet at the same time, there's something so beautiful about it to me. I know that sounds bizarre or savage, but, you know, there, there's something in our DNA um, that is conditioned to respond to these incredible displays of the ability to, you know, um, persevere through pain, whatever it may be. But, you know, it's it's why we like action movies where the protagonist has to go through hell to win. <laughs> um, and and there, we like it in our athletes, too. And there's no pure... Um, representation of that anywhere in the sporting world than in in boxing um you know maybe someone would say well that was once true of gladiatorial combat and we got rid of that and that's that's right and so you know uh, i'm the wrong guy honestly to ask that question because the beauty of boxing means so much to me. I don't think I'll ever be able to look away from it as long as it's there. But it's going to have to do some work to uh, remain a viable sport. You can't have uh, heroes dying in the ring or shortly after their careers end, which is you know, happening more and more. We're seeing the effects of this sport result in um, you know, these premature deaths deaths due to drinking or suicide or, or, or other sorts of things that can be, you know, correlated with traumatic brain injury. Mm. Um, and they say, you know, something like 80% of uh, professional boxers have some degree of, you know, documentable brain trauma. It's it's a really shocking thing, uh, and if it makes sense, and you're getting you're, this goal of the sport is to knock the other person out, is to give them a concussion, um, and uh, you know, in, if in 20 years it is gone, uh, along with MA and who knows, maybe football, I I won't be shocked, and I I don't think anyone should shed a tear for it, but as long as it's here, I'm I'm certainly going to uh, uh, in, enjoy it. Well, last it's it's <laughs> like like so many things complicated and a contradiction that we wrestle with and and I think right I, I, everyone it's it's big questions about you know being informed and knowing what the risks are and at what point do those risks justify you know well there's the a lot more that comes the, out of it yeah there's a lot more the sport can do I mean even if you can't improve the safety of the sport uh, which there probably are ways you could improve the safety of the sport uh, without without compromising the entertainment value mm-hmm. too much. But one of the things the sport is really bad at that has, you know, I think uh, there, there is no central regulatory body in boxing. And, you know, that has negative impacts on the sport and that there's nothing really to force the two best fighters to fight each other. Um, and in fact, we've seen more and more boxing has broken into these rival promotional cartels and they all fight within <laughs> their own group. Um, but it also means that there's not a retirement plan when it's all over. And 
there are guys who will fight for years and never make you know have never have one fight you know be a pay-per-view headliner where they make millions of dollars now forget about the fact that guys who have made the biggest fortunes in the sport mike tyson evander holyfield you know have gone and found themselves in basically completely broke after shortly after their retirement um and obviously floyd mayweather has been there before and who knows you know could be back again <laughs> uh, and manny pacquiao i think has 75 million in tax debt or something like that at least the last time i checked so you know even the guys who make a lot of money don't have a great deal of support managing it uh and for the the guys who spend their careers uh being the guys who get beat up on the undercard of fights you know uh for for five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars and then you know they give 20 years to the sport and they're the guys who all the man pacquiao's and floyd mayweather's beat on their way up and then they retire and there's nothing there's nothing there for them um that is a real you know a real black eye no pun intended on the sport and uh you know i think if 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 boxing does want to be a viable enterprise at some point it needs to it needs to address that issue because that's that's just you know we just it's just kind of a tragedy to see these guys who who go out and give their blood and guts to entertain people and then there's nothing left for them when they can't do it anymore there's <laughs> there's no doubt and and the sad reality is it is by no means confined to boxing and we already no. start to see those stories with mixed martial arts with the way in which you know the UFC does and does not too often take care of its fighters with the NFL I mean it's a frequent refrain and it's one that you know seems like such a basic truth is you need to take care of the people who make this all possible and who make the show um, but but far too often falls way short of that. I want to one more topic that I wanted to dive into a little bit before I, I take it sort of a little more broadly into some of your your work for Deadspin and how you got on this path. But but one thing with Ali in particular that I'd be remiss if if we didn't also talk about a little bit. It, it was so fascinating to me, and it was in many ways so appropriate to me. And and I come into this with my political biases like anyone else. But the fact that one of the moments that seemed to resonate so greatly from the uh, funeral service for Ali was the speech by Rabbi Michael Lerner um, that got so much attention and was very boisterously and outwardly progressively political and made mentions of the conflict in the Middle East, made mentions of drone warfare, made mentions of the inequality and wealth gap in this country, made mentions of all these issues that, in Rabbi Lerner's minds, and I think in the minds of many, are issues that Muhammad Ali would care about and would be fighting for and would be advocating for and continuing to, to do that in the future. And it was such a, in so many ways, brash and to me beautiful moment to when I, when I saw Michael Lerner take the service and unapologetically make it about fighting for human rights, for justice, for political change. What did you make of that speech and the way in which, you know, in the in the culture of our times, it seemed to go viral soon thereafter? And and it, what, what did you make of that in relation to Ali's life and his own politics? Yeah, Ali is, was all of those qualities you just described. He was brash. He was outspoken. Um, and he, 
used his platform to advocate for the issues he cared about. Um, and so I think it, there's a fitting tribute to the man's life that given a platform which you know the world would be watching, it wouldn't be spent um, ignoring the issues that 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 Muhammad Ali obviously cared mm-hmm. very deeply about. Uh, I think I think that's what Muhammad Ali would have wanted. So uh, for me, it was it was perfectly fitting um, for anyone who's speaking at Ali's funeral to take advantage of that moment to argue for social justice. I mean, Ali was a man who um, suffered tremendously uh, <laughs> because of the, the stand he took on the Vietnam War and on civil rights and. He cost himself money and popularity, and the maybe the what would have been the prime years of his career, uh, because he took a stand, and uh, that you know I think that that you know again that's that all goes into what made him this incredible figure who was the greatest, uh, and not just the greatest boxer or anything else like that. Um, he you know it was. Again, that uh, going back to what I said earlier, he there was there was not there was n- y- y- no uh, PR advisor telling Ali <laughs> what to say or when to say it. Um, you, you just got what he cared about right from his mouth, and mm-hmm. he was someone who was profoundly committed to justice around the world. And it seemed like Lerner's speech, in many ways, was sort of could serve as a reminder. And I think it's something you hit on that that you know over the years the narrative has sort of been refashioned. And and look, this is a good thing that it's happened this way. That you know today now people appreciate Ali for his stands, for the righteousness of his protest against the Vietnam War, for you know being willing to to stand up for what he believed in and not you know go overseas and and kill those that he had no quarrel with in his own mm-hmm. words but at the time obviously it goes without saying it was not received thusly and no. there's been there's been you know plenty of of talk and discussion of of that in and of itself what it says that it always you know always takes such a long time for the arc of political judgment and for the the world's appreciation to to eventually develop and here you had i think sort of a perfect reminder of a speech that you know many people might have said went too far was too unfiltered maybe wasn't you know in the right place. but but as you say this was muhammad ali this was exactly mm-hmm. what he stood for and and if you know there are people that that maybe have a problem with it today well then then all, all the more appropriate. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I don't think I could say it any better than that. Um. <laughs> it was uh, anyone who hasn't gotten the chance. I mean, I, I know uh, the the video uh, genius over at, at Deadspin, Timothy Burke, posted it on the site there. You can you can obviously go find it, but I can't recommend enough for everyone. And by no means, you know, the, the entire service was remarkable. And what was so remarkable about it was the, the plethora of voices from, you know, Orrin Hatch to Rabbi Michael Lerner and everyone across the spectrum talking about uh, how important Ali was. But but yeah, I would urge anyone who who hasn't seen uh, Rabbi Michael Lerner's remarks to to definitely go check go check those out. 
I want to just to to jump away from this specific uh, mm-hmm. subject for a little bit, Daniel, and talk about some other stuff. I mean, I, I am very curious to get into sort of your uh, path for for writing for Deadspin in the first place. Um, it's something that I'm always curious to, and I know you've been uh, writing for the site um, specifically on boxing, but by no means limited to it on a number of other topics as well for a number of years. How how did you first get started in in sports writing and and connected to doing boxing work for them specifically? Like Sean Newell and Albert Bernico, uh, I started out uh, as a a commenter on Deadspin. (laughs) I commented about boxing a lot. I would occasionally get into debates with the, uh, well, then AJ was the editor-in-chief, but then Tommy Craggs, who later became the editor-in-chief. We, Tommy was a boxing fan, and we would debate occasionally, and sometimes those would go o- offline. Um, and it was actually uh, the first thing I wrote, Tommy called me and asked me to write an obit on Hector Macho Camacho when mm-hmm. he was shot. And uh, I did that. And then I said, you know, uh, well, I just well, I think we were on the phone. Then I said, uh, hey, you know, I think you know, there's 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 an article I've been wanting to write for a while about um, about how kind of you know corporate pressures in um, in boxing journalism, the, the the shrinking industry that that is, have have kind of resulted in one reporter in particular for ESPN kind of having you know all the access and lots of other guys being shut out and you know he's not someone who has um, really uh, used that access to ask tough questions he's he's really served as a promotional mouthpiece it's kind of a, a symbiotic relationship there they give him access and he reports exactly what people want him to report so i ended up writing that piece and then uh, at some point uh i was actually i think me and tim marchman again i guess i, I had good judgment in which uh, at the time kind of associate editors i should uh, <laughs> buddy up with because they all became editors-in-chief uh and i were out for uh for drinks and we were just talking about it and uh you know kind of writing more uh fight stuff for the site and i think you know i uh, that's when i really started writing semi-regularly um was after after i just started talking to tim about him wanting to put more fight content uh, across the board on deadspin and so uh yeah since then it's just been um you know every now and then there's an event obviously that attracts a lot of attention and i definitely try to participate in those but it's just kind of more you know at those moments when i kind of feel like oh there's a there's an interesting story there Mm -hmm. let me run it by you know the folks over at deadspin and see if if anyone else finds it interesting and if they do great and if they don't you know uh no problem (laughs) and along the way you know uh will leach was nice enough to ask me to write over at sports on earth so I, i got to write for some other uh, sites as well, so that was that was great. Uh, it's been a it's been a real privilege to write with guys uh, like like Tommy and Tim and and Will. Um, you know, certainly guys who I admired for years from afar before I had a chance to uh, to work with them. So uh, it's been a it's been a really cool uh, experience. 
hopefully I'll get to do some more. <laughs> I, I, well, I have I have no doubt of that, and it's and it's it's so cool to hear because it's it's such a frequent um, story it, it, from from you and so many others as far as you know moving from admirer of work on certain sites to you know just commenting and getting involved and getting to know and then right taking a crack at at writing some freelance pieces and getting involved and it's it's uh, it's wonderful to hear you know let that be a lesson another Kinja success story for anybody yeah. uh, who who <laughs> I do think I to... crossed over before Kinja happened uh, in okay. my defense okay. so I don't think Kinja can be blamed on me <laughs> but do you have any advice for people getting out for getting out of the grays I guess that would be the other yeah uh, well I'm think about what <laughs> the only thing I can say that I do at least when I when I have something that gets a positive response, I, I can't say I do this every time, is to try to think, is there a reason to put this down be, other than to see the thoughts in my own head <laughs> on, on, in front of me? Uh, am, I, am I actually going to make someone else, you know, think about something differently or laugh or, or do, you know, is, is there actually going to be something there, um, that I can do? And, you know, I, I don't know beyond that. It's, it's really, you know, um, I think a matter of finding something, I'm a big believer in in boxing journalism in general, and in in particular, but sports journalism in general, you know, you should be passionate about your subject. Uh, Boxing journalism, you know, it has this incredible history. You look at most of the great American writers of the last 200 years uh, or 150 years have, have dipped their toe in boxing journalism and have written incredible pieces in it. And lots of people who you don't even necessarily think of as boxing writers uh have done that um so you know it it's been this incredible source of incredible of uh of of sports pros for a long time and it was you know it's tragic to me to see that the the people who get the most exposure today more often than not report it like a series of press releases instead of you know the 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 passionate endeavor and opportunity to explore the human experience through this uh this crucible of combat uh that 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 it once was um so um I don't know if that's practical advice at all, but all I can <laughs> no, say is, well, <laughs> for me, that's what that's what I've done. <laughs> well, I was going to say what it what it does is it leads me perfectly into the next thing that I wanted to sort of ask you and talk about because it's it's so fascinating and and you allude to you know the deep history of just tremendous sports writing in boxing and you know I'll go more broadly than than boxing, but it occurs to me just as a reader that one of the you know one of the many things that dead been and Gawker Media has done well over the last few years has been tremendous fight coverage, not mm-hmm. simply with your work, but, you know, for, for those who are not familiar, Hamilton Nolan, um, I'm, I'm thinking immediately of the wonderful piece that he wrote about uh, Triple G and his mm-hmm. rides. Greg Howard has done some amazing work on Good John job. Jones, on Conor McGregor, on, on a lot of MMA stories. I mean, I, I suspect you sort of alluded to the answer a little bit, um, talking about Tim Marchman, who's, who's now editor-in-chief there, who I know uh, has a background in in combat sports and and fighting, but just in your experience writing for them, um, how has that and why has that become a focus for the site, and why do you think the site does such a such a good job with boxing work and with combat sports journalism? I, well, I mean, 
yeah, first of all, because Hamilton is is just an incredible writer, <laughs> uh, and so to have, and it's something that I think, you know, if you go back a few years ago, um, you know, he wrote he wrote some incredible stuff for Deadspin starting back in I think around 2010 or so, and I, I don't think he'd found his voice on Gawker yet, ironically enough, and it was for a while it seemed like his outlet for the, the for his his you know his his best stuff was these boxing articles he would do on deadspin mm-hmm. where just the you know you, you just again you saw what a passionate fan he was and a guy who who again I if I'm not mistaken boxes himself um and um you know, all of that His passion for the sport just comes through. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's what I mean. I would read his pieces ten times in a row. I mean, I would just when one a new Hamilton piece dropped, I would just drop whatever else I was doing and just sit there and, and read it <laughs> ten times in a row. Uh, it was just the best sort of thing. And you know, I would never. Uh, uh, Dane to compare myself to to what he does, or but you mentioned Greg or or Tim, who's a fantastic writer when he's able to do that on combat sports. Um, Albert uh, mm-hmm. is a guy who, who probably doesn't write about it as much as he should, but he's a very knowledgeable fan. Um, you know, there's a lot of people uh, there who who really do uh, enjoy the the sport. There is, and there in addition to kind of the guys on the masthead charles farrell um Mm. just fantastic writer who uh worked inside the sport and has a real insider's view has written um not enough (laughs) because there could not be enough but uh probably a, a dozen or so pieces for deadspin now each one of which has just been jaw droppingly good so you know you know a lot of it you know credit to a guy like Tim for having the fight fans eye for the sort of stuff to run and, and, and not necessarily always looking in the box inside the box for kind of boxing coverage. But yeah, you know, I, I can't, you know, I can't tell you, you know, what it is about this site at this time, but you know, there are, there are other great sites on, on the, on the web for combat sports coverage. Uh, certainly, you know, Queensberry rules, you know, bad left hook, bloody elbow, whatever, whatever you like out there. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I do think, uh, this, you know, the, the collection of writers that they've got together at Deadspin is just fantastic. And I'm not including myself in that to be perfectly clear. <laughs> I would not put myself in the same sentence as any of those guys. Um, but, uh, it's just a, a fantastic group. Well, I will most certainly include you, and I will say that, uh, you know, I think, too, it's such a basic uh, concept, but I always think, too, what I I think it's, um, I think it is Albert who has said this on the site and and maybe others as well, and it just always strikes me as so sort of basic, but so, you know, important, which is that basically the editorial policy over there seems to be, or the beat policy, I should say, is basically write about what you're passionate about, write about what interests you. That's what you should be focusing on. Right. 
and it comes through as you say with with all of these great voices whose you know love for the sport and at the same time concern for the sport and appreciation and and willing to engage with it in in so many different ways comes through um and that takes me to to one other thing i wanted to just jump into with you a little bit um because it's another piece that was very noticeable um and this is going back a little ways now at deadspin but but i'd be remiss if i didn't bring it up and talk a little bit about it and that is of course the trouble with floyd mayweather a piece Mm -hmm. that for those who aren't familiar certainly worth looking up but in many ways i think it's fair to say was a piece that was instrumental in sparking and getting the ball rolling and continuing the conversation on floyd mayweather's issues and history with domestic violence and a mm-hmm. story that frankly was undercovered and had been underserved by the media to that point and, and we saw soon after you wrote this piece there was I think very much a, a snowball effect where ESPN began to take on the issue in ways that they hadn't before a number of other sites a number of reporters Rachel started, Nichols actually, I, can't, Rachel, I can't no one gets more credit for 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 uh Picking it up and running with it, then Rachel Nichols Absolutely. did one of the most courageous interviews I've seen, uh, and certainly it was one that Floyd could not handle because he got up, <laughs> walked out of the interview, and canceled all of his remaining press appearances before the fight. After it, he was so shook by by Rachel, uh, and, and canceled, yeah. and then went on and canceled her press credential and Michelle Beadle's and Michelle Beadle's uh, later Michelle Beadle, someone fight. else who dared to speak out about him uh, openly. Uh, yeah, no. Um, so you know, I think I think I, I don't want to pat ourselves on the back too much. There, there, there certainly had been coverage when Floyd went to jail for sixty days, and a very good writer for USA Today, Martin Rogers, had written a number of good pieces on Floyd. But uh, you know what? Uh, one of the one of the reasons why I wrote it was I checked, and there was nowhere out there where you could find his whole history in one document mm. and uh, that that upset me and uh, then we went and we got the court records from Las Vegas um, did a lot of other research and you know obviously the piece came together and there was a huge response to it which I think has been great and you've seen um, again Michelle Rachel Keith Olbermann, uh, one colleague of mine at Deadspin who we haven't mentioned yet, but who's done amazing work, Diana Moskovitz. Oh, absolutely. Kind of pick this up and run with it to the point now where a guy like John Oliver, you know, regularly will make a joke about Floyd Mayweather being a domestic abuser and everyone gets it, you know, and, um, you know, maybe the response to that hasn't been as what I would wish for, which is that everyone would stop tuning in for his fights and, you know, supporting him financially. But it's a huge difference from, you know, the way he was perceived as this kind of genial heel, kind of a a modern day Ted DiBiase to a, to a real villain today, uh, you know, uh, you know, a bad person. And I'm, uh, you know, I, uh, I, you know, I think that's important. I think you know the, these issues of you know people are really willing to make excuses uh, for an athlete's crime when the victim's a woman, um, and that you know we are seeing that in from time immemorial through uh, through Brock Turner uh, and everything else. And um, I you know it, it's a that 
is, uh, you know, I think something that all sports fans have an obligation to kind of stand up and say that the sports world needs to get their act together about this or we're not going to support them anymore. Uh, and we, I do think we can insist on that change. Um, and I'm glad, I'm, I'm so glad that, that, you know, uh, people picked up the baton about Floyd, but Floyd was a, just a case study. He mm. was just one guy in one sport who had this history that no one wanted to talk about, the problem is huge. Uh, and so I say, you know, there are just, there are people out there like Jessica Luther who does amazing work uh, on these sorts of issues. And I just think, you know, we need to look at this much more, much more broadly as a systemic issue in sports culture and, um, a lot of other places, but there, there is sports culture has created an atmosphere where um, victimization of women is an accepted part of life. And I think if there's anything, you know, those of us who have the ability to shine a flashlight on, it's it's that ugly side of the sport. And uh, at least, hopefully, um, you know, whatever. Uh, hopefully, people. Uh, you know, who commit crimes are, are prosecuted for them. But, you know, there's also something we as fans can do, which is to vote with our our wallets, convict with our wallets. And it, it's ironic to me that one of the athletes who has taken the toughest beating for fans in the last decade or so is Michael Vick. And what he did to to dogs was truly horrendous and I, I i'm a member of PETA. i believe me i i was horrified mm -hmm. but michael vick to his credit admitted what he did um he served his time and he got involved with animal rights organizations afterwards uh, he got educated about what he didn't and why it was wrong and he's taken a lot of steps since then to do what he can he can't undo what he did but to try to make things better uh, and I think that's really heroic and should be applauded. Uh, and yet Michael Vick still gets protested um, wherever he goes. Um, and athletes who are unrepentant batterers or rapists get cheered. I, I don't understand that. Um, as much as I love dogs, and I love dogs more than just about anyone else out there, I'm pretty sure. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't see how... Um, Th that's happened. That's one of the things that really bothers me about being a sports fan is the, is the indifference to the suffering of women at the hands of athletes. And so uh, this w this was one article about it, but it really the the goal of it was not to make Floyd the scapegoat for this. Floyd is uh, you know is a symptom of a corrupt system. Mm. Well, and and what I think was so <laughs> remarkable and important about the piece in many ways, as as you just hit on, it it, it wasn't about and and I think this this gets so lost is you know it, less about any desire to make Floyd or anyone else into this sort of pariah, but more about just shining a spotlight, as you say, on the fact that and and this was what was so remarkable was just the fact that that this just wasn't being talked about. The fact well, when that it was, was being talked about, it was being presented as a character building exercise. <laughs> I mean, we heard that so often. The redemption narrative the re of yeah, absolutely. That, that he, you know, he, he that he that he he had you know matured while he was in prison. Well, excuse me, he hasn't matured. He hasn't admitted what he did. He was on with Katie Couric, t continuing to tell lies about what happened. Uh, you know, and 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 yet 
you know, we would hear this refrain from some of the writers at ESPN and other outlets. So, you know, let's focus on in the ring. He's, he, he's done his time. No, no, <laughs> he's continuing out there to promote a fight by publicizing a false narrative. We absolutely need to keep asking questions about this and certainly do not present a redemption story there. There, w- there was no redemption. Um, and we've heard from, you know, his – we've now got a lawsuit – uh, from you know the, the fiance of Floyd when he went to jail, saying that he was incredibly abusive to her, and we, we know that he publicly humiliated her repeatedly. Uh, and she said she's said that he was physically and emotionally abusive in private as well. Which you know there's certainly uh, history that would support that. Um, so that was one of the things. I mean, I think that's people focus so much. On the fact that Floyd had, you know, there were that Floyd had been arrested five times for beating seven different women, um, and that's 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 a good fact to focus on. Um, but, or excuse me, f- five times for for seven separate assaults. Um, but. Uh, but the, the the fact that I, you know, I think was we tried to drive home was you know the sports media had never attempted to hold him accountable mm. and um the sport was not holding him accountable they were treating floyd with kid gloves while they were suspending guys for smoking pop between fights <laughs> and uh yeah for me that was the most offensive part of all of this was you know maybe floyd doesn't know better i don't believe that but you know Whatever, maybe you know. There, but there are there are responsible people out there in the media, in the in 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 sports uh, management in Las Vegas and elsewhere, and none of them were willing to stand up to Floyd because of what he represented in terms of money and access. Access, and, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's the <laughs> it's the part of the story that that sadly and again this is hardly unique to Floyd, but the the control and access that you know a particular athlete, a particular league, a particular team organization mm-hmm. has too often uh, is is used to to bully and dictate the coverage. Um, and I I want to just one last because I'm I'm sort of curious in this vein, and and I have you and I and I want to get your perspective because another piece that I think a lot of people saw and a lot of people took note of and that and that without a doubt had a major impact uh during your time at deadspin was similarly talking about you know the the uh, accusations and and crimes against women in the sporting world and your piece Jameis winston is not a victim um Mm -hmm. which was written obviously during the period in which Jameis was being investigated for sexual assault an investigation that we now know was (laughs) thoroughly botched in all sorts of ways by the tallahassee police department and was never as as competently and comprehensively conducted as it should have been um but but your piece had what i thought was such an important premise which was basically jumping off of statements made by winston's attorney essentially trying to cast him as the victim that as someone who in their you know estimation had been quote falsely accused of rape he was the actual victim in this instance and it was i thought so important and so interesting the way in which you cataloged and went through in our sports history the fact that accusations of sexual assault when when you know found 
to be untrue when when charges are dropped. Sometimes when you know convictions are obtained in the inst- in the case of Mike Tyson, does not oftentimes prevent someone from having a lucrative, successful, financially beneficial career. And just talking about the fact that again and again and again, we refuse to take these accusations and these crimes as seriously as we should. Yeah, you know, and that was a piece that I think more than any other piece uh, I have, um, especially given the the uproar caused amongst Florida State Twitter, which, uh, you know, I wish no one is surprised. Yeah, (laughs) I know. In one way, I think it was great. Uh, There's another part of me that for years has has wished I I, I wrote it three times as long um, (laughs) because I had to sit there and listen to people make the most absurd kind of comments after the fact um, about uh, about this. And and it's just it's it the you know, for for every, you know, it's again, it's a situation. Well, (laughs) what I would say is that, uh, you know, The um, I, I'm struggling with this one because this one still has, has a nerve in me. Mm. I, I think, um, understandably and, and, so. Yeah, um, but uh, it, it's again, and I, I look at the great work out there that that others have done um, on the subject, like Jessica Luther, who I mentioned already, covering kind of this this crisis of rape culture in athletic locker rooms on college campuses, and I think, you know. Those stories, you know, I mean, right now a lot of people are upset because Brock Turner got a six-month sentence for rape. People should not be upset because Brock Turner got a six-month sentence for rape. People should be upset because that is one of the most remarkably successful prosecutions (laughs) of a college athlete we've had. Six months in jail and, you know, his reputation permanently stained. Probably not a fair sentence for rape, but compared to what so many others have gotten away with, with no punishment, with, you know, Jim, you know, James Winston goes first in the draft, you know, he, you know, he has a bit of a slow start and then he becomes almost like a redemption story when he kind of, uh, has a few good games later in the season. Um, you know, James Winston and his attorney, um, who publicly named the victim in this crime before she was, had decided to come out and speak about it herself. Um, just really despicable behavior, whether or not you believe the allegation against him, and I certainly do, and uh, I've done a lot uh, I've done a lot of reading on the subject, I guess I should say. Um, and I certainly think that every point the victim made was fully corroborated by the physical evidence. Um, but just the, the the way in which uh, they respond to this, the, the, the callous way they responded, and the, the fact that it has had um, no impact on him. I, I, again, that that again, Jameis Winston is not unique. Uh, he's a symptom of a big 
culture and sports that people don't like to address. And, you know, when a case like Brock Turner comes along, it, it's great that everyone jumps on, but they're, 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 they're missing the boat. Mm. This is not, this is not the case to be infuriated about. <laughs> I mean, we can be in, it, you can be infuriated about it. Sure. But it, it, then you need to be 10 times more infuriated about Jameis Winston and what happened in his case. And in, you know, a zillion others, uh, you know, that, that you know, um, that, and, and, and countless more you never even heard about. Um, this, so, um, again, I, I just th- feel like uh, the um, well to take it all back to Ali. <laughs> <laughs> let's take this all back to Ali. Absolutely. Um, we never really heard Jameis Winston from the heart. Mm. We heard Jameis Winston on this case only when he read a prepared statement written by his lawyers. Now, that statement was despicable. Uh, you know, he cast himself as a victim in it, um, but uh, it was not. He he refused to testify in the hearing. Didn't talk to the police, um, and. Um, I think that, you know, look, I think, you know, I understand lawyers wanting to protect their client and all that, but, um, in an, in an atmosphere where athletes were held accountable for their behavior, I think people would want to know that they were hearing from the person themselves because Jameis Winston is not a, he's not a robot out there. You know, he's not people try to separate you know the athlete's performance from the athlete but when kids go buy a Jameis Winston jersey they're not just buying it for the quarterback they're buying it with the, the person's name on it um it's why they put names on jerseys and not just numbers um and uh and so i guess my thought on it is athletes especially now with social media and everything else are so much more than just, uh, people on a a playing field, um, and their personalities and who they are factor so much into their marketability that will affect everything from the, you know, the size of their contract to the amount of TV time they get and everything else. So, um, when there are serious questions of character, I, I, I do think it's incumbent on someone like that to give a, a heartfelt response, and that's never happened. Um, so I, I guess that's that's probably all I should say about this. Uh, but uh, it's 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 certainly a case that still haunts me, um, and the fact that he's gotten away with it with no no real consequence. Um, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, but it's it's true, and and there's no doubt that it's difficult to to wrestle with. And we're just you know fortunate for the work of yourself, of Jessica Luther, of Diana Moskovitz, who you mentioned, of so many others. Who mm-hmm. you know, I, I think you said something that's that's very true and very important. Is that you know it's not as important as it is obviously to pay attention to these cases and these instances, be it Brock Turner, Floyd Mayweather, Jameis Winston. It, it's not truly 
in the big picture about this specific person as much as it's just about let's identify and let's realize and let's start talking about the institutions and the problems and the fact that these are recurring realities. The fact that <laughs> consequences don't seem to come far too often uh, for for these sort of instances. And so it's it's, you know, not about piling on any one person. It's just about trying to make our system better and and should all be thankful that that you and so many others are doing that work well thanks i appreciate that I, again i certainly don't put myself in the category of those other people you mentioned but i do think uh again if there's if there's something good we can do to, to shine a light on injustice like muhammad ali would do then <laughs> that's a great chance to take advantage of that platform and i don't think there's a greater injustice in sports right now than than the way athletes have been allowed to treat women and I, I think it's clearly you can see the frustration that's built up that comes out at a time like Brock Turner. I think the problem is awareness and a lot of people still not believing the problems are as widespread as they are. And so uh, in the same way that I think, you know, our article on Floyd came uh, and then uh, followed shortly by the Ray Rice video uh, and, and and people uh, you know, obviously that had a tremendous effect mm -hmm. on people. I think, you know, hopefully there's a critical mass around these issues, you know, about rape on college campuses and stuff starting to emerge and we can, we can create the awareness and, uh, change some of these, uh, behaviors. <laughs> the, the progress is never as, as quick as it ought to be, but hopefully, yeah, hopefully it is there and, and hopefully it continues. And, and I think you said it best. That's the, the, the perfect place to leave it as, as Ali showed us these games and the sports we watch are about a lot more than that. And there's far more important things, uh, in, in this world of ours. So Daniel, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time and, and, uh, yeah, having, having the chance to chat with you. It is very much appreciated. And, uh, everyone can certainly follow Daniel's work on Deadspin. You can follow him on Twitter at Iron Mike Gallego. Um, and yeah, Daniel, I just I can't thank you enough and, and look forward to uh, all of the work that is still to come. Th thanks. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity and uh, hope it lived up to the advanced billing you gave it. <laughs> Maybe some I... snappy editing to clean up some of my answers and you'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> Without a doubt. We'll, we'll, we'll let the listeners decide, I suppose. But uh, I, I, I don't think there's any question. Daniel, thank you so much. Sure. Thank you. Thank you.